the scheme of last resort or the lifeboat funder, all these kind of like metaphors. But we are really that last port of call where there's nowhere else for you to go to try and claim some money back for what's happened. Now, I know I'm not a shining example of best financial practice, but I am here to learn. So to further my education, today we've invited on the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, the FSCS. You'll probably recognize their name, but might not know exactly what they do. I didn't. We asked them the questions you wanted to know. What actually happens if a bank fails? You lose money after bad investment advice. Basically, how safe is our money? So we're joined today by Emma Barrow from the Financial Services Compensation Scheme or the FSCS. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, that is right. Yeah, that's good. good <laughs> the stuff. acronym doesn't always get in the right order, but that no, one's No, right. I see people say all kinds of things, yeah. honestly. <laughs> you know, that cover, that's all they say in the end. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to start, really, because I think we all hear authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. So they're protected yeah. by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. Yeah. What do you do? Um, a lot of things actually and I think more than what most people know um, so you, most people are typically aware of FSCS because the logos on the bank statement or on the app that you use for your typical day-to-day -day banking so your banks your building societies things like that um, and that we call that deposit protection because the kind of regulated term is accepting deposits so if a company accepts deposits that does if they take money in us. off people yeah absolutely that so the money you keep in your banks in your building societies either as cash like in a current account or cash savings um covered by us so that's the kind of thing that most people know um but beyond that we have to cover a lot of other products as well so um insurance a lot of people don't realize this but if you're dealing with a uk regulated insurer and that insurer happens to go out of business we will either replace the policy for you or refund the difference, uh, the kind of premium that you had left. Um, and we can cover any claims that might arise at that point as well. Um, other products, um, a big one, I think possibly for your viewers and listeners, uh, financial advice. So actually if a regulated advisor goes out of business, can cover that too. Um, prepaid funeral plans, that's a new one that we started covering when they became regulated last year, uh, to, uh, July 2022. So funeral plans, um, debt management plans as well. Um, typically people who have debt management plans haven't got a lot of money, but if that money gets lost, that could be you know, quite devastating for those individuals. So we cover those too. Um, and generally kind of investments, pensions, home, ad home finance advice, a lot of that is covered. Um, but as you say, it's the regulated. As long as the firm's regulated, that's kind of what- Is this all free or do you charge for ah, yeah, these like financial, if you need like a financial advisor, is it free or- um, so our cover and our protection is completely free. So you don't pay extra for that. Um, you wouldn't pay kind of a premium on top of anything that you've taken out for that. Um, and if you ever need to make a claim with us, some things like deposits, the money in your bank, you wouldn't ever have to make a claim. We deal with that automatically. But for anything that you would have to make a claim for, typically financial advice, things like that, um, there's no fee either. So the scheme is funded by the industry. So you don't pay anything. You can make a claim for free. Um, some people do choose to use like a claims management company or a solicitor, um, but you absolutely don't have to do that. You can do it all yourself uh, and it doesn't cost a penny. Funded by the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So how big are the reserves here? Like, mm, Interesting question. And some people, that the funding thing is kind of something that people don't always understand. And we get some people maybe thinking we were funded by the government or the taxpayer, you know, ultimately uh, you and I, but no, it is industry funded. So how that works is each year we look at what we expect to need to pay out. And that's across all those different products that I kind of mentioned. Um, and we put together a forecast and we call it uh, our levy forecast because uh, that's the sort of technical name for it is a levy. And then each year we bill firms um, across the industry for that levy. They pay us, we pay that out as compensation. So we don't actually hold a huge amount at any one time. Um, it depends on what we actually expect to pay out. So we do a lot of forecasting work with with the regulators, with the industry to look at where, what we might be needed to step in and do. But how how ready are you if it all yeah. goes tits up <laughs> no, it's and there's like a, really good a civil war or we go to war with France or something? Yeah. I mean, we, we spoke to the Bank of England a few weeks ago and they've got 400 bar 400,000 bar gold bars sitting underneath their yeah. offices underneath their building they only actually own two of them okay. everyone else has gold but they got it well, yeah. so how, how liquid are you guys how, how prepared it's, it's are you it's a good question so each without kind of getting into the real technical detail each class of uh, industry uh, each class of firms as part of the industry have a limit that we can 
bill them every year and that's set by the regulators and that's so that we can make sure we're only ever billing what's affordable and we don't obviously make businesses collapse through just you know, asking them for that money. So for deposits, which is the the banks and building societies, that limit is one and a half billion in a year. So we can charge that whole industry sector in total one and a half billion. In addition, we've got a credit facility that's about another one and a half billion. So that takes you up to three billion and that's a like available within a few days. So we um, you'll see that if you read our annual report, we pay to have access to that funding facility. Beyond that, we can borrow from the treasury. So if you look back at what happened in 2008, 2009, when there were a lot of banking failures, in total, we paid out about 20 billion in the course of about two years. And that was borrowed and then recouped. So what we can do is we can then levy in the following years, one and a half billion a year to get that back. Um, also, what you've got to remember is when a bank or building society fails, it doesn't mean that all the money's gone. It can just take a while for it to come out in the insolvency. So we, whenever anything fails, we can access that money to pay out quickly. Like, that's a, the stock, important like a stop thing. gap until yeah. they can. And then we actually work to recover that money through the insolvency so that eventually it all comes kind of home to roost eventually. Um, so yeah, we can access funding pretty quickly and we can borrow as well, which is important. Because I know people are concerned about that, that obviously we're not sat on trillions of pounds because that money isn't there but we can access it really quickly i think people's fear is like a domino effect within the banking industry and we saw how interconnected all these banks are and if one goes potentially that can be like a contagion yeah and it's like how quick or how how big is your checkbook essentially? You know, yeah, and I think we wouldn't ever know until we got to that point but i say if you look back at what happened in 2008 2009 20 billion was kind of brought and paid out pretty quickly um i think things have changed a lot i know you um you know you might have spoken to the bank of england and others but things have changed a lot since then as well like the way banks are capitalized the way that they have to keep money and how much they have to keep and everything around that whole situation has changed a lot since then i think with the lessons that were learned um so although we uh, see some deposit failures i think in the last 10 12 15 years all we've seen is tiny credit unions and so the, it's not very common that no. armageddon for a bank really no, not we've not seen a bank failure ourselves since since that time since 2008 2009 yeah because i think one thing that i when i speak to people online is i try and reassure them it's it's the, this isn't the only thing protecting them there's actually oh, the cash no, the cash not. rules are probably yeah, more yeah. protective and the, and the bank of england um basically have two options uh, when a bank looks like it's in trouble um one is insolvency which is when we step in and pay depositors back the other is resolution and that's when they can bail in do all these other things and i'm not going to profess to be an expert in it but they've got other options that they would take and you you hear people use the kind of language like too big to fail and there are banks that are so large there is specific resolution strategies in place if the worst happened and they wouldn't involve us that would be a different strategy to either bail in create a bridge bank there's lots of different options and they say i'm not going to profess to be an expert on it but the bank of england have loads of information you can read about that if i gave you two million quid right now <laughs> would you feel comfortable just having it sat in a bank barclays bank or not uh, in particular but any, knowing what you know about the personally yes yeah. and i think this is the thing is how you keep your money is a very personal decision and risk yeah. appetite is a very personal thing. Yeah. Um, but personally myself, absolutely, yes, if I was lucky enough to have two yeah. million pounds, <laughs> I would happily keep it in in one institution. I mean, obviously it would depend on where I'm getting the best value for that and things like that. And the important thing to remember as well is um, FSCS does have uh, a provision in our uh, rules that allow for temporary high balances. So although our standard protection is £85,000 per person per bank, um, it tops up to a million pounds for up to six months if you've had... If you sold a house. Yeah, it'd have to be a primary home. So it doesn't cover people who have like investment properties being sold, but things like selling your house, maybe you've had a large inheritance or a redundancy payout or something like that. That covered. Yeah, you've got six months to sort out that but million only up pounds. to a mil. It's up to a million, So if the yeah. bank went under, would you not be worried about your other mil? I, I'm just not worried about that banks, happening banks on that scale. Um, I say I'm not lucky enough to have that <laughs> two million pounds that around, but pers- my personal view is I wouldn't be concerned. Um, right now, I don't hold more than the limit, but that's mainly because of how much I have in cash savings. It's not a huge amount, so I'm not in danger of kind of worrying about that. Can we talk about the limit briefly? Because it's, yeah, it's, it's 85K, mm-hmm. it's 250 in America. Yeah, two hundred fifty thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, yeah, like their insurance. Um, would you, do you think? The, why isn't it higher in the UK? Why should it rise with inflation? 
It's an interesting question because it's been at this level for a little while now. I can't remember off the top of my head how many years, but a good few years. Um, And whereas other limits for other things have risen, um, it started that way because it was linked to uh, EU rules. So EU depositor guarantee rules were set at 100,000 euros and everyone fell in line. And obviously we were part of the EU at that point. So we've been 75 and 85,000 and it's stuck at 85. Um, Now we've left the EU, there's absolutely opportunity to change that. I think. And I know we, um, as FSCS, we were talking last year about reviewing compensation limits for pensions in particular, because that's the same limit, 85,000. And we have seen people lose a lot more than that. So we were kind of campaigning on that. And the FCA have said that this year, and I think very recently, they just published a new strategy update. They are going to review the limits this year and put out a consultation on that. um, Because you're quite right, it hasn't increased in a number of years now. And with inflation as it is, that that, that is eroding. I think it's important to remember that uh, that is £85,000 per bank. You do have joint account protection as well. So if you happen to have an account with a partner, a flatmate even, whoever that is, you get that uh, per person. So there is an opportunity to kind of get a little bit more there. Could you just clarify the rules around, there's a lot of misunderstanding around the bank shared licenses yes. and stuff and, yeah. and how that works with people and give us an example. Yeah, um, so it is per person, per bank and the way that bank is defined is by its banking license. Um, again, you can check on our website. We've got a little checker where you can put in the names of the different banks that you might hold money with and see whether they're, there's any kind of overlap. And the PRA have a list that they update every month or so as well on their website. Um, but yeah, it's per banking license. The most common example we see is HSBC and First Direct. So that's one where they share they a share banking a license. license. Bank so, of Scotland and Halifax as well. Yeah, as I think they're part of the same one as well. Um, and there's Virgin Money and um, Yorkshire Bank, I think, or Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank, something like that. But again, you can check that really easily online and see where that kind of crossover applies. And it is just a, a technicality in the rules that it's because of the way that the, the banks are structured and the licensing is structured. We'll link it in the newsletter so people can put yeah, it in. Yeah, great. But really, do they really literally good. put in and it will say, oh, these are the shared licenses? Yeah, so and- I said the PRA have just a list. This is literally just a downloadable PDF that they update every month. But on our website, there's a uh, it's called the bank and savings protection checker and you just put in the name of the different places that you hold your money how much you have in each and you can add them all on and it will show you like how much of that is covered and how much of that isn't okay let's just a hypothetical situation now Mm -hmm. i know you said that banks don't tend to fail very often but let's say I bank with Barclays and they fail. Yep. What is the process there? What's What happens? So the process is the same for us, whether it's a bank, a building society or a credit union. And yet banks, we haven't seen failures of banks since the 2008, 2009 crisis. Um, but we do see small credit unions pretty much every year. And the process is exactly the same. So we have, um, and I'm going to try and not be too jargony here, but we have something called an SCV file and it stands for single customer view. And every single bank, building society and credit union has to keep this file. Um, And that is their list of customers and their basically aggregate balances. So how much money they are holding on behalf of those customers. And once an insolvency of a deposit taker is kind of confirmed in live, we, they have 24 hours to get us that file. Um, And we test this throughout every year. So we are constantly asking deposit takers throughout the year, live solvent firms to send us copies so that we know that the process is working and that they're holding the data correctly. Once we get that file and we can check and verify it, we are then able to start processing uh, payments for people. Now, typically, it's going to sound really old-fashioned, typically today, that's checks. And the reason it's checks... Slow them down. (laughs) (laughs) Not really, because we can get those really quickly. The reason it's checks is security. So if you think about it, if you you had your account with Barclays, Barclays aren't going to know that you also have an account with NatWest that they can pay into. Only you can cash a check in your name. Exactly. But what we do have is verified by the bank, your name and your address. So it allows us, that's the quickest way for us to get that money out to you. Um, So checks, uh, we have... uh, a remit to pay within seven days. Um, typically with these smaller credit union fares we've been having, it's, it's actually quicker than that. We've got checks out within 48 hours to people. Because um, as, as soon as we've got that file, it's very easy to um, to do that. So the mechanism's really, really simple. Um, it is by check, but nowadays, you know, most apps allow you to pay in checks and things like that, so it's quite easy. Okay. And same example, the, the bank fails mm-hmm. or, or something fails. We, we understand that it's banking licenses. So yeah. if an individual has two, two 85k pots 
with an organisation, first direct and was it Lloyd's? First direct and HSBC, HSBC. one of the common So I'd only actually have one set of cover of 85k. What happens if my partner banks there and we have a joint account? So there's three accounts. So the coverage is per bank and it is per person. It's definitely not per account. So you kind of have to look at all the money you've got with that one particular institution. So um, if your example was Barclays, if you had personal account with Barclays, you might have a current account, you might have a savings account, people tend to have the two together. And um, like you say, you might also have a joint account with a partner. Across all those accounts, you personally are covered for 85,000 pounds. Okay. So, um, so are they as well? So are they as well. So, so you we- could share, you, you might only have like, 30 40k and one or whatever yeah, and yeah you yeah. can split it across yeah the- and like i say we the file we would get would be an aggregate balance so we know how much you've got in total across all the different accounts so, so, so we wouldn't file. scv value yeah, so we wouldn't send you a check for every single account we will send you one check for your kind of aggregate balance so that scv will say in within our organization yeah. this bank they hold 82k total yeah. across all different accounts yeah yeah, so we get all that data. It allows us to, it's the most sort of simple way of doing it um, and being able to pay pay everybody kind of neatly and tidily. But you can check um, you can check banking license coverage, but also that kind of joint account, sole account coverage on our website. We've got this checker. You can put in all your different accounts that you have, either sole or joint, and it'll sort of put a nice little flag up and show you how much of each one would be covered in the event that something something did happen and it failed. And then just to just to finish off your thoughts at a high level, how safe is our money? Um, I think personally, I feel very comfortable. I think we're in um, a strong economy. I mean, reports at the moment might, might suggest otherwise, but personally, I feel like we're in a strong economy. We've got um, so much change since the banking crisis of 2008, 2009, so much new regulation, so many new requirements for banks and building societies to hit in terms of like the capital they're holding and things like that. Um, So personally, I feel really, really comfortable. I don't have my money under the mattress. It's all saved or invested with different regulated institutions. And I sleep quite comfortably at night with that, I guess. None of us know what the future holds, um, but personally, I'm pretty comfortable that it's safe. I can get behind this thing of the banks, as in traditional high street banks, say like bank accounts are probably too big to fail. We've mm-hmm. seen in America that quite a niche bank, Silicon Valley Bank, nearly went under and they bailed that out because of yeah. the damage. One area that I'm really interested in is brokers, as in okay. trading and investment brokers. Yeah. There's a lot of brokers at the minute that run at a loss mm-hmm. as they try and drive down prices but you still insure those essentially through you, you cover them. How do you feel about the fact that you, you have an insurance there that for lost businesses that are losing millions a year and that probably some of them won't survive? So for us, the kind of stability of the industry and all of that completely sits outside of our remit, right? So that sits with the regulators. It sits with those kind of bodies and, and government and et cetera. Um, how our protection works for things like brokers. So we had a couple of brokers. Um, there's some examples you can read on our website, all of these, but there's uh, one that went uh, under in 2019. Beaumont, was it? Uh, Beaufort, 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 Beaufort and SVS Securities. So both around that same time at 20, 2019, 2020. And how our protection works in these cases can be very different. So obviously if a broker fails, typically your assets and your money although the broker is holding them for you they are safe they're not if the broker goes should be ring fenced absolutely they should be kept separately so in those cases in svs and beaufort how fscs helped because that limit still applies eighty five thousand per person is we paid the uh, through the administrators we paid the costs of transferring those assets to a new broker so that's okay. how our protection worked in those scenarios. And that's something that's quite typical for a broker failure. Um, so instead of us kind of giving you cash back, Just we, we pay the, for the costs of transferring it. So you don't have to fork out, you know, what it is, a couple of thousand pounds a person, however much it might be to move your assets to a new broker. And then obviously once you're with the new broker, you can then choose what, what you want to do with that. So that's typically how it's worked for us in the in like recent times. Um, but it is very different to deposit take a failure in that it's not kind of just an automatic, here's your money back. Uh, a lot of work tends to have to how, go into What kind of timeframes do you think to unravel a situation like that? Really depends on the insolvency because obviously once this company goes into insolvency, there's an insolvency practitioner administrator involved it really does depend on the situation um and fscs although we pay um it's not 
we're not managing the administration so a lot of that is outside of our control we work really closely with them but it can think of in the case of SVS it was around 12 months or something like that it's definitely longer than the seven days you're going to get on a on a deposit but they're much more complicated um, and the kind of rules are very very different around how it works for things like but it feels like it's more likely that people might need that support in that sector than it is in say traditional banking where you've got these behemoth businesses that that are almost protected by so each year we um it varies year on year but in recent years we've typically declared around 100 firms a year in default so we've stepped in and helped customers of around 100 different companies every year no so typically actually the financial advisors that's why i was kind of getting Ah, on to most of what we deal with is financial advice at the moment how does that go wrong um, so people give advice that isn't suitable for their client circumstances, isn't suitable for their kind of declared risk appetite or things like that. And, and because most people who are seeking financial advice, they're looking to invest for the long term, right? They're not looking for a quick quick win. They're looking for maybe investing for their retirement or something like that. So how the typical chain of events is you go seek some advice, you use a regulated advisor, you do the right thing. Um, they potentially give you advice that isn't right for you. Um, and obviously they have hundreds of happy clients who everything works really well for. You might only realize that advice wasn't great five, six years down the line, right? You come to retire or you come to assess how your money's doing. You then think, oh, something's gone wrong here. I need to complain. And the advisor isn't there anymore. They might have gone into liquidation. Um, Obviously in this country, there's a lot of small firms. They're not all big firms. They can be one man bands or, you know, a handful of people. So they might have gone into insolvency. They might have just folded up shop and retired themselves or whatever. If they're gone, you haven't got anywhere else to go. You can't take them to court. They don't exist. You can't go to the ombudsman because they don't exist anymore and you have to come to us. And that's when we um, will investigate the firm, make sure it is definitely insolvent, uh, make sure your claim is valid and then we're able to pay out on those claims. So those are what we see absolutely the most of at the moment is I've had advice on a pension or an investment and it's just not worked out for me and it has, wasn't right. Um, I think it's important to mention that we absolutely can't cover poor performance. I mean, that's, yeah. what, that's what investing is, right? Again, it's back to your own personal risk appetite and some investments do well, some don't. Um, if you've invested in something and it's not turned out, that kind of is what it is. But if you've taken regulated advice and that advice is proven to be not right for you, that's where we are able to step in. Which areas would you say cause you guys the most headache or the most work? <laughs> would it be financial advisors or is it it's, banks it's, or? It's financial advice and it's pensions in particular. They're the most complex claims that we see. So typically where someone has transferred maybe from a defined benefit pension, so an old workplace pension that's got guaranteed benefits and they've decided to cash that in and move to a personal pension or a SIP or something like that. Those are the most complex cases we see and we see quite a lot of those. Um, or again- From bad advice, someone like explains to them, you've got a pot here that will give you an income for life. 100%, and they've yeah. moved it over to a SIP and they've gone, oh my God, I've just burnt that benefit. Yeah, or yeah, and people not really understanding the kind of impact of that. So not only um, the fact that it might not perform as well, but like you say, losing those guaranteed benefits, having to worry about your investment strategy, having to worry about your drawdown strategy or whatever that is, which you would not have had to worry about in your old scheme. So there's a lot of those kind of claims we've seen over the past couple of years, poor investments generally. So people investing in schemes that the advisors recommended to them, but it's completely unsuitable for them. So things like overseas property, stuff like that, that just then completely has collapsed and not... They've lost everything. As financial advisors are like regulated, Mm -hmm. shouldn't this happen less frequently? Aren't they meant to give you like sound advice that fits your risk appetite and they ask you questions on, yeah. So how does this happen? How is there like a misalignment? We see all sorts of different things, right? So sometimes it's genuine mistakes. People are human. They're going to make mistakes. Um, They've missed something. Um, And the difficulty for us is because we're only dealing with companies that have gone. We can't ask that advisor. We can't sit there. Do they have to be gone? For us to step in, yes. So if your advisor's still trading, you have to go to the ombudsman. That's where you would go. So you would complain to the advisor themselves and then you'd go to the financial ombudsman. We we used to be, you might have ever seen us refer to things like the scheme of last resort or the lifeboat fund or all these kind of like metaphors. But we are really that last port of call where there's nowhere else for you to go to try and claim some money back for what's happened. How do, you, how do you see it with someone like Neil Woodford then? Neil Woodford was advertised as a, a star fund manager within the UK and mm-hmm. he set up his own fund range and those funds were advertised as relatively safe for investments that were focused on blue chip companies with a view for long-term growth. Mm. But he actually took the money and then speculated on 
investments that weren't even listed. So they were illiquid. Mm-hmm. Investors then got shut inside of the fund and couldn't get their money back out. But they were told- Investors. Yeah. Investors. This guy. I mean, I started with this 10 years because as a naive investor at the time, yeah. I came onto Hargreaves Lansdowne and they were like, this is the guy, buy this. Look how shiny he is. Everybody buy this. And they continued to pump his funds even when they were collapsing. But then investors were told, well, that's just the way it goes. To me, that seems like misadvice. Mm-hmm. And where would, obviously, why would, why would people never- you know, giving their money back in that sense. Yeah. So FSCS's role with this kind of stuff only kicks in if anybody in this whole chain goes out of business. So either becomes insolvent or through whatever other means is is out of the market. Um, Typically for us, so I'll I'll use it as an example. Um, If someone had invested in a fund off their own back, so they haven't taken that regulated advice that is mainly what we see claims for um obviously that shuts off that angle for us so there's no advisor there for you to be able to claim against there could be other regulated companies in that chain a fund manager for example or someone like that who has breached whatever regulatory rule or guideline for us it get and again it does get really complicated but For any claim that we see, we're looking at a couple of things. We're looking at you as the individual who's making that claim and whether you're eligible for compensation. And there's a load of rules uh, sitting with the FCA about how we can pay compensation. Typically, we're looking at things like, are you an experienced investor? Are you, would you work in finance yourself? Are you you a regulated individual? Um, Things like that. We're also looking at the firm and its actions and how it behaved and whether it did anything wrong. And ultimately, the test we're applying on a case-by-case basis is what we would call a civil liability test. So we're looking at if you took that particular firm to court, had it been in business, do we think the court would have ruled in your favour and said, yep, you were wronged by that business? Um, the Woodford example is a good one because it's a it's a live example. It's still very much in the news. I know the FCA of... Um, uh, talked about uh, there's a linked uh, company that manage the fund um, that are being investigated by the FCA. Um, and if any of the funds ever, any of the sort of firms in the chain ever go out of business, that then we'd, we would absolutely look at that to see if there's anything we can cover in that chain. Do you separate advice from marketing? When you're um, talking about qualified financial advice, would you not say that false advertising would be It's interesting because we say we've got really strict rules on like what circumstances we can pay in and a regulated activity has to have taken place. So that is something like advising on investments, arranging investments, uh, accepting deposits, which we talked about earlier, so taking money in uh, like a bank does. So there are certain things that are not covered under that regulated activities order. Um, It all kind of boils back to um, the Financial Services and Markets Act of 2000, which is where we were kind of born from. So there are certain things that we can and certain things that we can't um, cover. And it's really hard to give a kind of yes or no answer until something actually happens because everything has to be investigated on its own kind of merits at that point. Can you guess what the biggest learning has been from doing this podcast or even my YouTube channel? It's that the most important investment you can make is in you. So for me, my path to real wealth isn't through investing, it's by building this business. And that's why I'm happy that we're working with Hostinger. Hostinger help entrepreneurs, freelancers, and side hustlers with their websites. My favorite thing is their AI website builder, which helps anyone create a professional website with zero coding experience. You just describe your goal in a couple of sentences and the AI creates a beautiful looking website, just like magic. You can then customize it, use the AI assistant to generate SEO friendly text, and even use their AI logo maker. It's fast, user-friendly, and of course, what I like the best is it's great value for money. You can get website hosting in a free domain from £2.99 a month. So if you want a website, then check out Hostinger. And if you use the code MAKINGMONEY, that's making money all one word, you'll get 10% off. And I've left a link in the description for you. Before I became a creator, I was a sales guy. I mean, I love selling. It's how I rebuilt my life after some wrong turns in my 20s. I also delivered Chinese takeaways on the side, but that was more fun money so I could go out on a night without feeling guilty. Sales was where the real money was at. And one tool that I found really useful was LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's a sales intelligence platform that helps you identify and then get into conversations with high value customers so you can drive more revenue. 
You can use it to look for key signals like recent job changes. So you can find buyers who are most likely to convert. And because they've got a billion people on the platform, I mean, the chances are your targets are going to be on LinkedIn. Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data so you can get into conversations with the people that matter. So if you want to give Sales Navigator a try, you can get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash upsell. That's linkedin.com slash U-P-S-E-L-L for a 60-day free trial. One area that's clearly a lot of people are losing a lot of money through all different means is cryptocurrency. Yeah. And that that doesn't fall under your no, space. No, it doesn't. Do you, would you, could you ever see a world where that was caught under that umbrella? Because it's, if you treat it from a perspective of where the people need the help, that is it. Yeah. yeah? So cryptocurrency as an asset, absolutely not covered because it's yeah. not regulated yeah. in the UK. If you were advised, again, by a regulated advisor to invest in crypto, that is absolutely something that we could consider because okay. we're not looking at the crypto, we're looking at, the advice, the advice that you were given, that's the activity that we're concerned in. So in some respects, I think it all a lot of it boils down to making sure people are getting the right advice. And if they are able to use a regulated advisor to make big decisions, get, you know, you're not going to do that if you put in a few thousand pounds into something because it's just not going to be financially viable. Um, but yeah, I, what we cover and what is regulated is constantly under review, I think. And I know there's a lot of different bits of legislation going through Parliament and things at the moment. There's a new Financial Services and Markets Act. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but a, a new equivalent of that that's currently working its way through Parliament that might change things in the future. Last year, funeral plans came under regulation and became protected. So things are getting added all of the time. Um, and I think... There's always that gap though, isn't there, between what consumers are doing and what's available There's and how lag. fast yeah. and how fast policy responds to and that. And also people are just speculating in that space and you yeah. don't protect against losses from speculation. No, we so absolutely like, don't. But there is a lot of scams in that space as well. Yeah. And there's a lot there's a lot of scams are really frustrating for me mm. personally. Um because that's because we can only cover you if you dealt with a regulated entity. If you're scammed and the person that you've dealt with is completely unregulated, there's literally nothing we can do. And it's it, that, for me personally, is really tough. It's horrible. Because yeah. we see so much of it. You yeah, because I worked in the credit card industry and obviously there was protections there. You, you could be pretty confident that if your credit card was money was taken off it, you would have that money back pretty quickly. That was part of the, like, yeah. the perks. But at the same time, there's an argument of it kind of means that people become a bit sloppy because they know that like they can just call up the car company and it can be reversed mm -hmm. the transaction. So I don't know if, if you're bailing people out everywhere, they get scammed, it, it would be, does that promote more scammers into that place? Cause they know that they can. I don't, I don't know. I mean, some of the things that we see, um, are basically people impersonating regulated firms oh, or really? impersonating, um, you, the FCA have got a page on their website that's constant warnings about impersonation and like, um, copycat. Do people um, steal your logo and stick on their website? Yeah, 100%. How, how can that's, that? so easy. that's so easy, paste. isn't it, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I get that through my YouTube channel. People just yeah. take my profile picture and message, I'm clone my Instagram, yeah. message people and say, I'm Damien, invest in this cryptocurrency and people fall for it all the time. It's I got so my Instagram hacked do. by that. I've got about eight yeah. people mm -hmm. pretending so my to My friends like, vote for me for this influencer award. I'm like, sure, I click the link and then it's like, you're locked out of Instagram. Yeah. Like, and I what? call my friend, they're like, that's yeah. not me. That's like a duplicate profile. So It's so it easy happens. to do in today's day and age. And it's really, I say for me personally, it's really frustrating to see. Because I mean, there are some scams that you look at them and you're like, oh God, that was so obvious. Why did you fall for that? But now they're getting so sophisticated. I was reading something a couple of weeks ago um, about how, do you remember even just a couple of years ago, like spotting a scam was all about, you know, poor spelling, yeah. you know, whatever. Chat GPT yeah. is changing how scammers yeah. are behaving yeah. like overnight because they're able to pump out really realistic People sounding can barely promotions. Speak English. Yeah. yeah, now they they're able to just turn yeah, something out English that's much more convincing than French, it was. Yeah. Write me a fine, you are, yeah. It's it's scary really how easy it is for, for people. And I think I mean, I always tell, say to my parents and, you know, friends and family, doing your research is so important. And I know um, the FCA have talked about bringing things in like um, kind of cooling off periods and things like that. And I, I, I personally think there's a great idea because that's something a scammer wouldn't do, right? They're not going to have a cooling off period in, a, no in an investment or anything like that because they just want your money and they're gone. And I think there's kind of the... As you say, with things like crypto, people are being speculative. There, there is a bit of a maybe fear of missing out and wanting to kind oh, of yeah. get involved in something that looks the pretty lucrative. Yeah, and you can make snap decisions that 
are possibly not the right thing to do. And that's where scammers are rife, right? Because you make that one snap decision. And If someone does get scammed, can you help them if they're with like a bank? So, you know, sometimes they call up old people and they say, oh, uh, we need your card number because some an Amazon purchase is yeah. going to... And then they go and give all their details. If they then get scammed, I guess the bank will cover that? Yeah, so they, we, they need, say, they because we can only step in if the bank's gone. Okay, so, you know, yeah, they so would the bank go to the bank and if the bank... If they respond from the bank they weren't happy with, they can take that to the ombudsman. Yeah. But if the if the bad advice came from an advisor who was qualified, you can step in. But yeah. if the bad but if it was a scammer pretending to be that person, you yeah, can't. We can't, and that's yeah. the difficulty because um, there's no regulated entity there for us to sort of pin that claim against. And it's only going to get worse, as you say, with technology. You know? I mean, I think it is. Yeah, personally, but I think security can also get better with technology. Like yeah. for, for this transaction, do a face scan or like, you know. But I think can... it's really hard for people trying to get into investing. You know, like if you, I was like this a couple of years ago, I never invested, everything was in cash. Um, and mainly because I'd, I was scared because of what I'd seen working in finance. And I was thinking, goodness, it's so hard to get in. And if you can't afford financial advice, which is expensive, yeah. um, it's not really viable if you've got a small amount of money to invest. How do you get into investing for that first time? And I know, again, the FCA are consulting on um, a, new, a new kind of, part of the advice regime that is going to allow um, simple advice to get into a stocks and shares ISA for the first time. And I, again, I'm not, I'm not involved in all the detail of that, but on the surface, that feels like a good idea to me because I do think people need help to get in and make that jump from cash to to invest in. I've heard about this podcast called uh, the Making Money Podcast. <laughs> I think that's a good way to get started <laughs> in, uh, in investing. But it is, it is hard. I'm guessing you get a lot of people who... Yeah, well, I mean, I did an investing for beginners video that's got like half a million views and people just say like, why is this not taught at schools? Why, yeah. why why, is there not this open conversation? Why do I have to seek this information out? Or why do I have to pay hundreds, if not thousands of pounds just to be told if you take a little bit of money and put it in this ISA, like that that will change your life if you do that consistently over a long period of time. Yeah. But yeah, the, the broker point. So I asked my audience for questions mm -hmm. for you and there was a financial advisors asking me questions for clarification, which mm -hmm. I thought was interesting because I think there's just some kind of myths and misconceptions about what you do. Yeah. They, they were talking about if you have money on a broker, mm -hmm. um, like a trading two on two, a free trade, whoever, but I then buy Vanguard funds, mm -hmm. Who where's my cover? If, am I covered through Vanguard because they hold the money or am I covered through my broker? So Depends on the type of company and whether they're regulated or not and what they're regulated for. And it depends on what happens, I guess. So if you were in a platform, um, like a couple of examples that you gave and the platform itself collapsed, yeah. and like you said, but the fund you've got is with someone else, then the fund is still going to be there assuming that they did you know, they did yeah. what they said they'd done and they bought those funds on your behalf. So that would be like the example I gave earlier where potentially what we could do in that situation is help you move to a new platform um, and and work with the administrators to facilitate that. If the fund itself collapses underneath and the provider's still there, then it would depend again on the circumstances, whether that fund was, um, whether it was just poor performing and that's life investing or whether there was mismanagement there and whether there's a regulated company there to turn to. So it depends entirely on what actually happens. And this is why um, it is quite difficult to say, yes, that's protected and no, that isn't um, for anything other than deposits really, because it will so depend on who was involved, what happened, and all of that has to come out in any investigation. Um, but in theory, it could apply to either. So it could apply to either the platform or the fund underneath it, or indeed both. So we've seen... Um, you can have two or three different regulated parties involved in one chain. Um, so I, I dealt with a case recently of a, a lady who came to us um, who was uh, misadvised on a pension. She actually ended up over the space of a few years at making four different claims against four different entities. She had incredibly bad luck, but in part of her journey, there was four different companies that had gone bust that had all done something not quite right. Um, so incredibly bad luck, but you can... you. Just because there's one event, if there's two firms involved and they both happen to be out of business, that you can end up having claims against both. I know it's a feature of the fact that you you only insure ad advisors, but it's also scary to sit here and listen to you say, well, you should get an advisor, but the advisors are where all the-, the, the, the They can charge the you money and yeah. yeah. give you bad advice. Yeah, yeah. You've got to put this into perspective, yeah. right? So we might be declaring- say up to 100 firms a year in default, that's across a market of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of advisors. And a lot of times those firms that fail might only have a handful of claims. So you've got to put it in perspective. It's not, um, 
all of these advisors are human beings. Mistakes will be made throughout people's careers. Especially over a whole country. A hundred percent, yeah. But that's why we're here, right? And we're there to be able to, even if it's just one person that has had poor advice and that firm's gone out of business, if we can prove that that's happened, then we can help that one person. And that's, that for me, that's really important. What, what would you say is like a common misconception or like the biggest myth you hear about FSCS? Like, um, well, people come to you and say, can you help me with this? And you're like, no, we can't, we don't do that. I think the biggest misconception um, is usually about things like, uh, like when we can step in. So all the different conditions that kind of have to be met. So the firm has to have gone out of business. There has to be no other kind of recourse for you to be able to follow up. Um, and the fact that if you it's still trading, you've got to go to the ombudsman. Um, I think the other misconception is, is that people can't, kind of make a claim themselves and we talked about this before but it's free and that's something we get asked a lot is do I need a solicitor do I need to use a claims management company or whoever you can choose to do that if you want to and they'll handle the paperwork for you but you can completely do it yourself I think for me the biggest thing that um, and I see it a lot online and uh, when I'm talking to people is and it's as frustrating for me as it is for other people not not being able to give you a categoric answer and say, yes, that's protected and no, that isn't. And that's just a function of the rules and say all these eligibility criteria and things that have to be considered if a firm does actually go out of business and all that in kind of individual investigation that has to go on. We call it like the invisible effort. It's the stuff that we're doing behind the scenes to check that those claims are eligible and check that everything's um, kind of okay to be able to pay compensation. So People get really frustrated and sometimes a bit scared, I guess, that we can't just be like, yes, that's 100% covered. And it's, no, a, that isn't. it's a symptom of the times. Everyone wants like instant gratification. They're like, let you, me type in my details and, and just give it. me an answer now. But Yeah, and you get it. And we can give those categoric answers for deposits, for the money in the bank. We can give that categoric answer for insurance. They're weird um, about brokers. They don't like me sitting there going, this broker is covered. Because they're like, well, yeah, it might not be all the investments might not be and well, they could be exactly somewhere it. else. There are so many individual circumstances that yeah. apply to every different transaction, every different individual that's making those investments that it is really hard to give that category. So as an, let's say you're a retail investor and you're putting mm-hmm. your money into a broker and you're trying to better your life, but you also want to be conscious of just setting it up in a way mm-hmm. that gives you the most protection. Is there any best practices that someone could go through like places they can check the brokers types of investments that they should stick to or so the only thing i can give you here is my personal view right yes, so please. i can't give you advice i'm not an advisor myself seeing you in a couple of years she owes me 50 grand yeah. i have considered doing the exams you know just to sort of live it from that side of it and one day I might do that but personally myself I always check the company's authorised so that's the first thing I will do I go on the FCA register I check that that company's authorised I check that there's no clone warnings or any of this stuff that because that's people the, impersonating them yeah yeah, yeah absolutely so i go on i check that i check the details because the fca register has the like registered number and the registered email address and the registered web address so you can check that you're using the right channels you're using the right channels so that's always my first part of call personally um no matter what i'm doing and then i know this is kind of cliche but I think about what my objective is here and how much my risk appetite actually is for this particular thing I'm doing. So is this a big part of my retirement fund? Is it a small part? Is it something that, like we said before, it's something new that I think, you know what, I'm going to speculate and put a little bit of money here. So I do have that proper conversation with myself about how much I'm willing to lose out of this money. Um, And that ultimately is very personal and that's very much each individual have a very different um, appetite you know i might be putting a thousand pounds into something and that's out of a fifty thousand pound retirement pot i might be putting fifty thousand in but my retirement pot is 20 million you know these are going to be very very different decisions so i always check the register i always check that they're they're um regulated i will look at other people's reviews of them i mean i am guilty of that i know that it's not good to take advice off random people on social media but you can see yep. <laughs> it does it does paint a but picture sometimes it so. does, especially if you check multiple sources yeah. which i do yeah. i will look at and if there's five thousand five star reviews you kind of yeah you know yeah. you've got so i do do my and I can never say this due diligence. <laughs> I do do that, and I do check um, and look at what protection might be there. Personally, myself, I'm not that worried about firms going out of business. I'm not that worried. I think that's reassuring um, for people to hear. The biggest ones we see are insurers, um, but actually, because they're um, the way that that works, it's so 
easily resolved um their individual detriment is not an issue with how does an insurer go bust what's the is that they don't have enough money to cover the claims because basically yeah so um, natural disaster or something like this pushes could be anything so we had one um not too long ago maybe about 18 months ago called mce insurance which uh, was a motor insurer uh they primarily did motor bike policies and scooter policies and things like that they had around 120,000 policyholders when they went bust um and exactly that they ran out of money right so they'd sold policies and we're getting too many claims and the premiums weren't covering the claims. So very easy kind of column A didn't add up with column B. If your insurer goes bust, should you be pretty confident that that's going to be okay? Would that be quick resolution? It's pretty quick. So um, typically what happens is the... It's again, not getting too complicated. Um, the insolvency practitioners who are brought in to deal with the insolvency, they appoint what they call a runoff agent. So it's someone to step in and manage the insurer while they sort it out. Um, so what we do in that situation is we're either going to find you a new insurer and pay to move you over so your cover just carries on with a new insurer. Or if you were, let's say, six months into a 12-month policy and we can't find a new insurer, they're not willing to take on those policies, we give you that refund for that money that, is left. So if you paid £1,000 for a 12-month policy, you're six months in, you're getting £500 back from us and then you're able to go and replace Get that policy. And we also cover the cost of any claims. So if you, in the case of MCE, there were people with active claims that their bike had been damaged or stolen or whatever, and they'd made a claim, we then step in to fund those payments as well. So it's pretty seamless when it comes to insurance and they are the biggest ones we deal with the, with the largest number the of largest people. ones but like yeah. mainstream banks and big brokers are not that typical no not at all you said the phrase too big to fail do you genuinely believe that like still exists or per- personally do it, I do it's yeah. a very personally like Lehman I do. Brothers and then more in crypto that's not regulated but like FTX like recently they collapsed mm-hmm. and like Lehman Brothers so do you do you not think that wars or like different circumstances or quantitative easing think, or all this printing money can affect the economy so badly that a bank can go I, th- I think know. banks can fail I mean the regime is designed so that and that um, you'll you'll see things from the bank of the treasury they say it's not a zero failure regime it's not nothing can fail I put like we said before personally I wouldn't feel uncomfortable holding large amounts of money with large banks but it is very personal it's up to every individual to decide on what their risk appetite is and you said with your money in your bank if you do believe that there are no firms that are too big to fail if you believe that every bank's at risk I'm a little bit skeptical now after the last decade <laughs> well if you are then you've then you can make that decision to split your money around right yeah. and you can make that decision to manage different accounts with different money in it right you you can make that decision for yourself personally i think that's the key thing is that there is a solution to that if you are worried about a large bank and you're holding more than eighty five thousand, then split it that you know that is pretty nowadays pretty easy to do and pretty easy to open account with another provider if that's what you want to do what about investment products like pensions which will obviously have significantly over 85k in value yeah there's no real easy answer to that is there again it's about your personal risk appetite if you really want to take it all and put it under the mattress then you can do that if that's what you personally believe there's no real answer to your own risk appetite and what you're willing to do I, I personally i educate myself i read a lot i listen a lot and i try and make decisions that i'm personally comfortable with and allow me to sleep at night um, and for me that is a fairly standard workplace pension a couple of personal pensions that i've opened over time um some money in different banks and a few basic investments um i think i'm sure you know a lot of your listeners and viewers will talk about this but it, it's all about yeah, personal risk, personal risk appetite, diversification, spreading your money about, you know, do things that make, say, you can sleep at night doing. Um, that's all I can really say, I guess. But the the people who are the last port of call, like the, the people with the safety net are saying they're, they're not too worried. Well, you're saying you're not Personally, too worried. Yeah, Personally, yeah. Not, like, not do, you want, do you work with some people that are like, oh my God, we're doomed. It's like the, the whole Personally, I don't, but it's funny because I get a lot of friends and family who will come to me and say, it's, it's interesting how different people can influence each other, right? So I had a friend recently message me. Um, she's not a particularly close friend, but a, a decent friend. And she was like, you know what? I've always taken investment advice from a guy at work. She was like, I know, I know. Maybe that wasn't the right thing to do, but I always have. I've trusted this guy. I've worked with him for a long amount of time. And he's turned around to me this week and told me to sell all my stocks and shares ISIS and buy gold. Oh, what God. should I do? Yeah, and that was my first reaction. Was, oh, God. <laughs> Is he regulated? Um, well, well, clearly not. It is just a friend at work. Yeah. But how normal is that realistically? You know, it is very normal that yeah. people trust someone that they've worked with or a friend or family member that 
they they trust in other aspects of their life. So she's always followed this guy's advice and um he's not regulated, he's just a guy she works with. Um and to be fair, the advice he'd given her in the past was decent. She'd opened a stocks and shares ISA, she'd been putting money into that. It was very mainstream, very retail investor, all fine. And suddenly he's panicked. And it was so interesting how quickly that had spread to other people. Yeah. Um and I said, I said all the same things I've said to you. I was like, I can't give you any advice. That isn't my job. I'm not a regulated advisor, but here's some things you need to think about. You know, you need to think about if you're putting all your money in one asset, what that means. And, and I kind of educated her on things like, you know, if you buy gold, you have to store it. <laughs> you know, it's not, if you're physically buying gold, either someone has to store it for you and you have to then trust that person. <laughs> so if you're doing this because you don't trust, well, are you going to keep it in your literal house? Like, what is this? And it was kind of like opening those questions up and those kind of discussions was, was quite interesting, but I found it really interesting how quickly that that worry can spread amongst people. Yeah, it's interesting that the paranoia and fear around banking collapses, which the media pushes a lot, you know, they're like, oh, the the, the next 08. The journalists it, have a lot to answer for, yeah, definitely, it, right? But that's their job, isn't it? Their job is it sells a headline. stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then actually what the biggest threat to people is, is making bad investment decisions by listening to people who don't know what they're on about. Yeah. And, you know, as a social media person, I, I am part of that, right? Like if you look at the YouTube space, People click on negative things. People, that's just, and if you're- it's human nature, isn't it? Yeah, it, you know, you, you're drawn to them. And what people don't understand about YouTubers maybe is that that is their main source of income and mm-hmm. that's how they pay their bills. Yeah. So they have an incentive to be negative and that can then feed into people, like you say. And that guy might've watched a video that morning where- yeah, he someone genuinely he likes, believed it. He yeah, genuinely believed it. Someone's got to flip everything into gold, but that guy won't be doing that. He's just doing that to get his cash in from his views. And then yeah. that that feeds out. There's and a lot like, of responsibility, isn't there, on- like that's say, a a threat to your finances than your services ever needing to come into play essentially I, personally i 100 believe that yeah yeah um say so i i thought when i started working at fscs that like exactly as you say i might think oh no i've seen the inside now i'm really scared it's absolutely the opposite the opposite yeah i've i've invested more since i've worked here than i ever have before i was expecting you to sit down and be like the men in black like we've saved the world 10 times today you don't even know before you had your breakfast (laughs) (laughs) just like what a wheel come out of this like what what, what day is it don't get me wrong like the work that we do is absolutely important and i see people i see cases day in day out of people that have been misadvised and have lost pensions and we are able to step in and it's great and we do help a lot of people we help thousands of thousands of people a year but it, I think we said before, we're a small organization. We're 250 people. Um, the scale of this is not It massive. shows that there's not that much inbound traffic versus say no. when we used to deal with citizens advice and they would just be getting yeah. thousands of calls a day. So it, the fact yeah. that you've got 250 staff shows you're not getting billions of calls. No, you know? we are the safety net, right? And we operate like that, but we're not, as you say, we're not having to save the world every single day. It's not that kind of situation at all, no. If there's someone at home now listening who thinks, I got advice five, 10 years ago that I don't think was right. Like mm-hmm. what What do they do to, to get in touch with you? Great, really great question. So um, how our service works is... Um, we investigate the we can't investigate every single firm that goes out of business right because first of all we don't know if they ever gave any bad advice or did any bad work they might have had a complete clean bill of health but also the amount of companies that are folding and say for either because they're insolvent or just because the person's given up that business or whatever is huge so we rely on former customers coming to us and saying I actually think I had a bad experience here. So on our website, there's um, almost on every page, there's a button uh, that says check if you can claim. And what you need to do there is you go into that. It asks you a few very, very basic questions, um, who the firm was. So it's really useful to know the firm reference number. So their FCA um, firm reference number. Um, you say what kind of product it was, pension, investment, uh, funeral plan, whatever. Um, and the dates that you dealt with them. So roughly, if some people won't remember, but you can put in a rough date and all that's doing is checking that at the time you dealt with that firm, they were regulated. So it's just doing a really basic check on, has that firm gone out of business? Has it? Did you deal with them at a time when they were regulated? If it says, gives you an ice green tick and says, yeah, that firm was regulated at that time and you were able to make a claim, you then register an account on the website and you can go ahead and make a claim with us. The process can be fairly lengthy because we need to see some evidence you know we need to see some sort of paperwork that you've dealt with that person obviously um but once you've made an account you can start your claim and go in and out as many times as you like you can kind of log out leave it come back 
do whatever you need to do. And what we look for to start a claim is just some really basic evidence that you dealt with the company. Maybe you've got emails or paperwork um, and people can just take photos and attach them. They don't have to be like original copies at this point or anything like that. But every product has a slightly different application form online. We do have paper application forms, but I think it's like 98, 99% of people do it online nowadays. Um, it's much easier uh, to do, but we do have that option if anyone ever needed that. Um, and yeah, people go in, fill in all the things that we ask for, um, submit it and off it goes. Um, and then we, if, if that firm has already been declared in default, so maybe another customer has already complained about that firm, it'll be a bit quicker because all the kind of investigation of that company's done. Um, if someone claims against a company that has never been investigated by us, we do have to start that process from scratch and it can take quite Will a long time. Will you investigate any claim? We'll investigate any claim that comes in. So it's not like we need 10 before we nope. take it seriously? We only need one valid claim to declare a firm in default and be able to pay out. So it can be that. And often it can be that one one person that that tips it over. Um, that's all it takes. Um, and it, sometimes we only ever pay one claim. That, yeah. that might be the only one we ever pay. Well, you know, I've always said on my channel, like this exists, it's great. And it's a lot, it's, you know, a lot of countries don't have this. Yeah, but, a lot of countries don't. A lot of countries only do deposits. So very, yeah. there are not many that do kind of all the different products. The funeral one's really nice because you think about how heartbreaking that must be for a family if they're, especially if they're, Nan has paid into a funeral product to cover their funeral. They die, and then it's like, oh no, we're gone, bust. The money's gone. Yes. How quick are you on that? Like, um, so funeral plans only came into regulation last July, so July 2022. So we've not had a failure yet. Really? No yeah, we've not had a failure. Now, bear in mind that to get authorised, there was a a lot of providers dropped out at that point. So I think about 26 made it through and became FCA authorized. So you cleaned up the market by- Well, the FCA did that definitely yeah. wasn't. I'm gonna take credit for that. No, but it yeah, essentially so will have cleaned the market because all the people that were like, oh, we're not gonna try and get regulated are the ones that probably are a bit Yeah, dodged. so the process did filter out a lot. And I think there was a couple of big ones. One was called Safe Hands that we were in the press around that time because they didn't meet they didn't meet the criteria for authorization. They weren't good enough, basically. They can, can they still sell the product, but they can't get a stamp of saying um, this is covered? I know, I think it... that's it now. I think they can't sell the product. Oh. Um, and then old old plans were kind of moved over to different providers and things like that. I worked that. in the debt management industry when that went from unregulated yeah. to regulated. And it was like cowboy industry prior to like before yeah. i got there but like five years before it was wild what was going on in that <laughs> before i got yeah, there. yeah I, I that whole thing up. i was like the new sheriff riding in like this is all gonna change yeah do you think since you started working at the fscs you started i, I keep um do you think you got better at with money better with investing or do you think you were always good with money you said because you said like it, it made you more confident since you've been working i think i've got better at it i think i've thought about it more because i'm surrounded by it every single day right so i had worked in financial services before but i'd worked in like retail building society type environment so at that point i'd gotten really good at savings mortgages because that's what the, the building society did but i never really thought about investing advice um because as i say it isn't taught at schools it isn't something that necessarily people are exposed to day today but because I'm around it now every single day and I work in communication so my job a lot of the time is trying to simplify things and explain things it's it's naturally I've had to get really involved in the detail and that has like I say it's reassured me it's made me feel much more confident than I was and also that kind of education I've given myself over the kind of three years I've now worked at FSCS has really helped me personally and and it has made me think about things like why isn't this more available to people why aren't what is it that we're missing? What is that trick that we're missing in this country that people aren't confident enough to invest safely and sensibly and having to, you know, people like yourselves having to fill this gap, really. Yeah, and, yeah and, I shouldn't and have to that. exist. You Realistically, know? <laughs> no. It should be provided by the government in terms of financial education, but it's not. And it allows this market to operate that actually is not regulated, which is kind of dangerous in a way, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like I would like to think that I have good morals and that I'll sit there and say what I do and won't push people into bad things. But I know that people do because they get offered money to to do that and that exists online. And yeah. if you regulated it and gave quality advice from the government, none of that would need to exist. It wouldn't, but you kind of, um, I do have these kind of moments where I sit there and think, but the way humans are, there's I think there's always going to be something that's I not- I think there's an inherent lack of trust. Yeah. And even in your- you're there to be this insurance mm -hmm. and the questions are people like, yeah, but 
who, who's paying for it? Like, where what, are they in their pocket? And that's they, really hard to get around, yeah, isn't it? There's a lack of trust. Yeah. And that's kind of why we wanted to bring you on to sit here as a human, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. say like, I work there and I trust the system and I'm happy to put two million, my two million quid in the future. <laughs> I wish you talking about my fictitious. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I am. And and I say, if anything, it's it's done nothing but increase increase my kind of trust in in how things work. But it's such a personal thing, and like you say, all people can do is try and expose themselves to as much information as they can absorb in and listen to different views, and ultimately make that decision up for themselves on what they're comfortable with. Well, I hope that's reassuring for people listening. Yeah, I hope so too. To get a bullet point summary of this episode which I definitely want. There was a lot there. Sign up using the link in the description. And finally, what do you want to ask us? It can be about money, of course, but also anything you're interested in. Send your questions to makingmoney@kindling.media. I'm Tamayna Karale, and I hosted this episode with my slightly shorter friend, Damien Jordan. Get better soon, mate. The episode was recorded by Jack Hobbs and edited by Johnny Hunter. Music is by Felix Taylor. It was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by Will Stolomon. Quick question for me and the Making Money team. Would you like us to come into your workplace to teach you and your colleagues more about personal finance? It's an absolute joke that we're not taught what to do with money. And this knowledge gap makes most people much poorer over their lifetimes. Take your work-based pension. Most people have no idea what the fund they're invested in does, and plenty of people just opt out altogether. We can cover whatever is most important, from the basics to complex financial retirement planning supported by qualified financial advisors who are not there to sell you anything. We take different approaches for different people in a company depending on stuff like their age or their income. If you think people you work with could benefit from financial education, then please email will at getmost.co.uk. It doesn't matter what your role is in the business, we want to hear from you. So email will at getmost.co.uk and I've left a link in the description for you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.